Hello, and welcome to the Cedar Fort Come Follow Me podcast with David Ridges. I'm your guest host for the week. My name's Casey Paul Griffiths, and I'm the author, along with Mary Jane Woodger, of 50 Relics of the Restoration. And today, we get to talk a little bit about one of the most important sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. That's section 76, also known as the Vision. Now, no revelation given in this dispensation demonstrates the importance of Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible better than section 76. The whole vision, the entire expansive look into the afterlife, was sparked by one verse, John 5.29, which Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon were reading as they translated the Bible. And John 5.29 reads really simply, And shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. This apparently caused Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon to start thinking a little bit about the afterlife and what it meant right there, that there could be more resurrections than just one. In fact, in the prophet's history, which is prepared a few years after the vision is given, uh, Joseph Smith gives the following introduction. He says, From sundry revelations which had been received, it was apparent that many important points touching the salvation of man had been taken from the Bible or lost before it was compiled. It appeared self-evident from what truths were left that if God rewarded everyone according to the deeds done in the body, the term heaven, as a tenant for the saint's eternal home, must include more kingdoms than one. Accordingly, while translating St. John's Gospel, myself and Elder Rigdon, that's Sidney Rigdon, saw this vision. Now, in the earliest copies of the vision, too, there's a one-sentence summary that Joseph and Sidney write before the vision that kind of captures what it is. They they note the date and the location where the vision was given, and then they say it was a vision, quote, concerning the church of the firstborn and concerning the economy of God and his vast creation throughout all eternity, unquote. Now, just to break that down a little bit, the church of the firstborn is found throughout all the scriptures. It's a phrase that gets used a lot, but maybe the best definition is found in Revelation given just a couple um, years later. That's section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the church of the firstborn is defined by the Lord as all those who are begotten through me, that's Jesus Christ, and are partakers of the glory of the same. You can be a, a member, for instance, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and not be a member of the Church of the Firstborn. The Church of the Firstborn are the people that are going to be exalted, that are going to receive the full blessings of the gospel, that will become like God and gain exaltation. So this is the first thing the vision is concerning the Church of the Firstborn. And then the second thing that they write is that it is also concerning the economy of God and his vast creation. Now, in an 1828 dictionary, economy at the time, today it kind of is used to denote, you know, finance and commerce and all those things. In 1828, the one of the definitions given for economy is, quote, primarily the management, regulation, and government of a family or concerns of a household. So, taking that one simple statement, the aim of the vision is just basically to explain how a person becomes part of the church of the firstborn or exalted, and how God governs and regulates his family. Now, that's not too ambitious, right? Uh, but the, this vision, like I said, kind of 
covers everything and puts everybody exactly where they belong. Now, for a little bit more of historical context, there was a guy named Philo Dibble, who's a member of the church at the time, who said he actually arrived at the John Johnson home in Hiram, Ohio, where this vision was given while the vision was going on. Um, uh, Philo Dibble later on said, quote, Joseph and Sidney were in the spirit and they saw the heavens open and there were other men in the room, perhaps 12, among whom I was wondering part of the time, probably two thirds of the time. He said, I saw the glory and felt the power, but did not see the vision. Philo also recorded that Joseph would at intervals say, what do I see? As one might say, while looking out the window and beholding what all in the room could not see. Then he would relate what he had seen or what he was looking at, and Sidney would reply, I see the same. Then Sidney Rigdon would say, what do I see? And would repeat what he was seen or seeing, and Joseph would say, I see the same. Uh, Philo continued saying, this manner of conversation was repeated at short intervals to the end of the vision, and during the whole time not a word was spoken by any other person, not a sound or a motion made by anyone except Joseph and Sidney, but it seemed to me they never moved a joint or limb while I was there, which I think was over an hour to the end of the vision. He said at the end, Joseph sat firmly and calmly all the time in the midst of magnificent glory, but Sidney sat limp and pale, apparently limber as a rag, observing which Joseph remarked smilingly, Sidney's not as used to this as I am. So there's different times in the vision, uh, Verse 28, 49, 80, and 113, where Joseph and Sidney both say they were commanded to write what they saw. And that's one thing that needs to be remembered is that Joseph and Sidney are writing down what they saw. And what they're seeing is is not just a vision. That's kind of the colloquial term for section 76, that it's the vision. But the vision itself is really a series of of different visions. They will say directly, this vision closed and another vision open. And we saw this and it basically covers everything from the celestial kingdom to the telestial kingdom to outer darkness. And so let, let's start right at the beginning here. If you've got your scriptures open up and they start with one of the most important declarations they can. Hear, O ye heavens, this is verse one, and give ear, O earth, and rejoice ye inhabitants thereof, for the Lord is God, and besides him there is no Savior. Great is his wisdom, and marvelous are his ways, and the extent of his doings none can find out. His purposes fail not, neither are there any who can stay his hand from eternity to eternity. He is the same, and his years never fail. Now, another unique thing about the vision um is that it's one of the only sections of the Doctrine and Covenants that Joseph Smith himself offers an extended commentary on. So you're listening to my commentary and I'm walking you through this. But one of the interesting things is that um, towards the end of his life, Joseph Smith, collaborating with W.W. Phelps, actually composes a poetic version of the vision. He calls it Vedemicum, that's Latin for go with me. And it's published in the church newspaper, The Times and Seasons, and in essence, it, it basically gives um, the vision rewritten with certain little items of commentary. So the way it worked was W.W. Phelps wrote Vede Mecum, which was basically a, a challenge to Joseph Smith to teach him about the eternal worlds. And Joseph Smith and W.W. Phelps collaborate together on a, a poem called The Answer, which is basically step-by-step step through the vision uh, where they're writing or rewriting in poetic verse. So, for instance, um, 
The opening of this talks about Jesus' majesty, glory, and power. The opening of the poetic version of the vision reads, His throne is the heavens, his lifetime is all, of eternity now and eternity then. His union is power, and none stays his hand, the Alpha Omega forever. Amen. And so, as we go through the vision today, we're going to kind of bounce back and forth and look at this commentary um, that's given by Joseph Smith, because this, again, is one of the only times that Joseph returns to one of his revelations and pauses and says, hey, let me point out a few things that are said. For instance, uh, verses 5 through 10 talk about the mysteries. Verse 7, the Lord tells them, I will reveal all mysteries, yea, all the mysteries of my kingdom from days of old and for ages to come, and I will make known unto them the good pleasure of my will concerning all things pertaining to my kingdom. In the poetic version of the vision, they start to talk about these mysteries, basically, and give this promise that anybody can know the mysteries uh, even clearer. And the poetic version of the vision reads, From the council in Kolob to time on the earth and for ages to come unto them I will show my pleasure and will what my kingdom will do, eternity's wonders they truly shall know. Now that's kind of neat because it's going back to uh, the initial council in heaven. And it's also acknowledging a revelation that was given to Joseph Smith after he received the vision, which was the book of Abraham that acknowledged that the planet that God lives on is located near a star called Kolob. Just kind of neat. So Joseph actually starts writing the vision, uh, starting in verse 11. We, Joseph Smith Jr. and Sidney Rigdon, being in the spirit on the 16th day of February in the year of our Lord, 1832, by the power of the spirit, our eyes were open. And this is effectively the first of the series of visions that are given. In fact, the structure of section 76 is that you start out with a vision of the Father and the Son, basically the best of the best, the highest realms of eternity. Then from there, you make this dramatic shift where the second vision they see, uh, this is found in verses 25 to 29, is the fall of Lucifer from heaven. Immediately after they see Lucifer fall, they see the fate of the sons of perdition, people that follow uh, Lucifer into perdition. That's in verses 30 through 38. Then it shifts to another vision. Again, you go from the worst, the worst, the best, the best. You get the lengthiest vision found in section 76, which is a vision of the celestial kingdom. That's found in verses 50 through 70, and then they return to it again in 92 to 96. Then they see terrestrial glory. That's the glory of the moon, the honorable but not valiant people of the world. That's found in verses 71 through 80. And then finally, they end with a vision of the telestial glory, uh, people that people that basically came to earth and showed up and got a body but didn't do much else. That's verses 81 through 86. Now, at the end of the vision, running from uh, verses 87 to 113, they basically go back and revisit every single one of the three degrees. And then 114 to 119 is kind of a closing uh, statement. But remember, the vision will be easier to understand if you start out understanding that it's a series of visions. So let's start with the first vision in the vision. That's found in verses 18 through 24, and that is the vision of the Father and the Son. Now, there are a couple unique and interesting things here. First of all, verse 20, we beheld the glory of the Son on the right hand of the Father and received of his fullness. This this demonstrates that this early in 1832, Joseph Smith 
is teaching that uh, the father and son are separate. He knows that from the first vision. Um, there's a, an account of the first vision that's written around this time where Joseph only refers to the Lord. And some people have said he didn't know or, or he hadn't had it revealed to him that they were separate. Section 76 clearly speaks of them as two separate beings. And then they give this testimony of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Verse 22. And now after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony last of all which we give of him, that he lives. For we saw him even on the right hand of God. And we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father, that by him and through him and of him the world's are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. Now, this is uh, the testimony of Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon that's quoted in The Living Christ, uh, which was published by the First Presidency in the Twelve. It also expands our understanding of Jesus Christ just a little bit. You'll note that it doesn't say Jesus is the Savior and creator of the world. It says the world, plural, are and were created and the inhabitants of the worlds are begotten sons and daughters unto God. What they're teaching here basically is that Jesus just isn't the savior of the world we live in. He's the savior of all the worlds that he's created. In the poetic version of the vision that Joseph Smith and W.W. W. Phelps write, this is even clearer. In fact, they add in another insight. Um, in this part, they write, By him and of him and through him the worlds were all made, even all the career in the heavens so broad whose inhabitants too, from the first to the last, are saved by the very same Savior of ours, and of course are begotten God's daughters and sons by the very same truths and the very same powers. That seems to suggest that not only is Jesus the Savior on these other worlds, but the very same truths and the very same powers, the same priesthood, the same ordinances, the same covenants, the same doctrines and principles are taught that the gospel is universal. And this is kind of uh, neat because we, we know that the other worlds exist. They're discussed extensively, especially in the Pearl of Great Price, but we don't ever hear very much about how the gospel works on the other worlds. And this just basically says that people on other worlds are saved the same way a person on earth would be by accepting Jesus Christ as their savior, by entering into covenants with him through people that have the priesthood assisting them, and by keeping commandments and enduring to the end. So we are already adding to our understanding of Jesus Christ. He's he's the savior of the universe, uh, the first of the visions explained. Then in verse 25, we shift to the second vision, which is about the fall of Lucifer. They say, we also saw and bear record that an angel of God who was an authority in the presence of God, who rebelled against the only begotten son whom the father loved and whom was in the bosom of the father was thrust down from the presence of God and the son and was called perdition and the heavens wept over him. He was Lucifer, a son of the morning. Now this is again a study in contrast. You go from seeing the best, the best, the father and the son, the worst of the worst, Lucifer. And it's interesting here that instead of calling him the son of perdition, they call him perdition. Perdition is a Latin term that just basically means utter loss or ruin, just total destruction. The The connotation of perdition is that a person who becomes perdition is basically damaged beyond all repair. Now, there's been a lot of speculation too about the statement in verse 26 that Lucifer was a son of the morning. It also says he was an angel in authority in the presence of God, uh, but we don't really 
know much about how high or what his position was. Um, Son of the morning, some people have been to imply that he was one of the elder of Heavenly Father's children. But again, we're, we're speculating here. We don't know. One of the great contributions of Latter-day Revelation is that we actually do know a little bit more about the origins of Satan. For instance, uh, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon received Moses 4, 1 through 4, which gives the entire backstory. Uh, both passages here in section 76 and in Moses 4, 1 through 4 talk about him changing from being Lucifer, which is a Latin word that means the bearer of light, to Satan, which is a Hebrew term that literally just means adversary, to oppose, obstruct, or accuse. Uh, the information about Satan, a little bit more is given when he translates the book of Abraham, which he's told that he was angry and he kept not his first estate and many followed after him. And that shifts to the next vision, which runs from about verse 30 to about verse 35, which discusses the, well, it actually keeps going all the way down to uh, verse 49, where they discuss the sons of perdition. Now, this is a, <laughs> a hot topic in the church as well. A lot of people want to know about sons of perdition. Remember, perdition means ruined. The Lord says in verse 33, they are vessels of wrath, doomed to suffer the wrath of God and the devil and his angels in eternity, concerning whom I've said, there's no forgiveness in this world or in the world to come. Section 76 also gives the the best brief definition of what a person has to do to become a son of perdition. Because when it comes down to it, we're a pretty generous uh, religion. We believe that most people are, are going to make it. And just about everybody goes to at least a pleasant place. Like there's not a lot of suffering, but the sons of perdition do go to a place of suffering. Section 76 is clear about that. So here's what it says they did. Verse 35. Having denied the Holy Spirit, after having received it, and having denied the only begotten Son of the Father, having crucified him unto themselves, and put him to an open shame. So, they deny the Holy Spirit, after having received it, they deny the only begotten Son of the Father, and they're willing to have crucified Jesus, and put him to an open shame. Now, there's other places, like Alma 39, where it talks about an unpardonable sin, Alma says, Denying the Holy Ghost is worse than murder or adultery. Um, but on the surface, denying the Holy Ghost sounds like a, well, a, a sin, but not like a, a life-destroying, uh, eternally condemning sin. Uh, but denying the Holy Ghost is a short euphemism for something a little bit more intense. Um, Joseph Smith later on in his life gives a discourse where he explains a little bit about this. And here's what he says. He said, all sins shall be forgiven except the sin against the Holy Ghost. Jesus will save all except the sons of perdition. What must a man do to commit the unpardonable sin? This is what Joseph Smith said. He must receive the Holy Ghost, have the heavens opened unto him, and know God, and then sin against him. After a man has sinned against the Holy Ghost, there's no repentance for him. He has got to say the sun does not shine while he sees it. He's got to deny Jesus Christ when the heavens were open to him and to deny the plan of salvation with his eyes open to the truth of it. And from that time, he begins to be an enemy. So the unpardonable sin is, is much, much more intense than just denying the Holy Ghost. It's basically a short way of saying you have had the plan laid out for you. You have seen Jesus Christ, and you know for sure that everything is true, and then you deny it. Section 76 goes so far as to say, you not only deny it, you're willing to crucify Christ afresh if necessary. You're not just a, a murderer in this case. You're someone that in your heart would be willing 
to murder Christ. And this is such an extreme sin that a lot of times we, we kind of back off and correctly say this isn't an option for most people. Most people don't have enough knowledge to say that they have seen Jesus Christ and they know for certainty that the plan is the real deal. Uh, and we would say, well, this is just a small category of people then. I mean, in the scriptures, only Lucifer and Cain are specifically spelled out as sons of perdition, possibly Judas as well. Um, but Joseph Smith, in the same statement, also adds this, which makes you think. He says, this is the case with many of the apostates of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, Joseph is a classy guy, and he doesn't name any names. But he does say, when a man begins to be an enemy to this work, he hunts me, Joseph Smith. He seeks to kill me, and he never ceases to thirst for my blood. He gets the spirit of the devil, the same spirit that they had who crucified the Lord of life, the same spirit that sins against the Holy Ghost. You cannot save such persons. You cannot bring them to repentance. They make open war like the devil, and awful is the consequence. So that statement that Joseph Smith makes, that this is the case with many apostates of the church, really does make you wonder. Now, He's talking in context and in his time specifically, and that is from one of the last sermons he gives near the end of his life. So he might be talking about the people who are literally getting ready to murder him. But one correlation is a high degree of hostility towards not just the Savior, but the Savior's messengers to the point to where you seek to, to kill them. The part of crucifying the Savior afresh for a son of perdition is that you also kind of want to destroy the people that share his messages. And again, section 76 uh, takes plenty of time. In fact, when you look at it, it talks more about the sons of perdition than any other of the groups, except for those that go to the celestial kingdom. It says in verse 36, these are the ones who go away into the lake of fire and brimstone, the devil and his angels, and the only ones on whom the second death will have any power. Verse 38, the only ones who shall not be redeemed in due time of the Lord after the sufferings of his wrath. So our plan of salvation is really generous, but section 76 also goes out of its way to acknowledge that even though sons of perdition will be resurrected, that's taught in section 88, verse 102, and 1 Corinthians 15 and Alma 11 also teach that everyone gets resurrected, uh, but that they, sons of perdition, though they get resurrected, don't overcome the second death. They they don't have a chance to be in the presence of God or Jesus Christ or the Holy Ghost. Now, in verse 50, we, we shift from the worst of the worst, the sons of perdition, to the best of the best, those who enter into the celestial kingdom. So starting in verse 50, and this runs to about verse 70, there's a discussion of those that are exalted. And it says here, we saw and heard, verse 50, this is the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ concerning those who shall come forth in the resurrection of the just. They are they who received the testimony of Jesus and believed on his name and were baptized after the manner of his burial, being buried in the water in his name, and this according to the commandment which he has given, that by keeping his commandments they might be washed and cleaned, cleansed from all their sins, and received the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands of him who was ordained and sealed into this power. Verse 53 goes on to say, they are overcome by faith, they, they who overcome by faith, and are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, which the Father sheds upon those who are just and true. So he opens up a couple ideas here, that they not only receive the Holy Ghost, uh, but they're sealed by the power of the Holy Ghost, that their righteousness kind of creates this seal or stamp of approval that says, yes, this is someone 
that not only entered into covenants through the sacred ordinances of the gospel, but lived and honored those covenants and lived so as they could receive the Holy Ghost. So in contrast to this, the sons of perdition receive the Holy Ghost and then deny it. Uh, a person that goes to the celestial kingdom receives the Holy Ghost and embraces it. They live as to always have the Spirit to be with them. And starting in verse 54, the Lord starts to explain the blessings they receive. They are they who are the church of the firstborn. They are they into whom all into whose hands the Father has given all things. They are they who are priests and kings, who have received a fullness of his fullness and his glory. They're priests of the Most High after the order of Melchizedek, which was the order of Enoch, which was after the order of the only begotten Son of God. Wherefore it is written, they are gods, even the sons of God, and all things are theirs, whether life or death or things present or things to come. All things are theirs, and they are Christ. And Christ is God's. Now here it only mentions sons of God. You might note it it all it only mentions sons of perdition too. When we get to section one thirty two of the Doctrine and Covenants, it's gonna open up the idea for men and women, sons and daughters of God, priests and priestesses, gods and goddesses is the actual phrase used in section one thirty two. So I just want to reiterate that all promises made here that are made to men are also made to women. Verse 69, they, these are they who are just men, and I'll add in, and women, using section 132, made perfect through Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, who wrought out this perfect atonement through the shedding of his own blood. Now, the poetic version of the vision um, has extensive, extensive commentary on this too. The poetic version of the vision reads, they're priests of the order of Melchizedek, like Jesus, from whom is his highest reward, receiving a fullness of glory and light as written, they're gods even sons of the Lord. So all things are theirs, yea, of life or of death. Yea, whether things now or to come, all are theirs. And they are the saviors, and he is the Lord's, having overcome all as eternity's heirs. Isn't that beautiful? So when a person gets resurrected, if they've honored their covenants, and they've lived to, to have the Holy Ghost with them at all times, they become like Heavenly Father. They become truly the sons and daughters of heavenly parents they have the potential to become like our heavenly parents and receive all the blessings that he has and that's one of the great things about the vision is that it presents god as someone who honestly isn't jealous of what he has who doesn't hoard it and wants to give us everything that he can he's not sitting up there just doling out blessings a little bit at a time here and there he is anxiously desiring to give us everything that he possesses he wants us to basically grow up and become like him. All right, now starting in section uh, 76, verse 71 to 80, uh, we see another vision open. This is the vision of the terrestrial world. Remember, you can keep those straight by going sea turtle, celestial, terrestrial, and telestial. Verse 71 says, again, we saw the terrestrial world. And behold, and lo, these are they who are of the terrestrial, whose glory differs from the church of the firstborn, who have received the fullness of the Father, even as that of the moon differs from the sun and the firmament. Then he gives the standards here, okay? These are those who died without law. These are they are the spirits of men kept in prison, whom the Son visited and preached the gospel unto them, that they may be judged according to the men in the flesh, who received not the testimony of Jesus in the flesh, but afterwards received it. These are honorable men of the earth, but who were blinded by the craftiness of men. So a couple of things that that need to be clarified right here. Uh, section 76 referred to these as those who died without law. And that seems to imply that the terrestrial kingdom is filled with non-Christians who never had a chance to hear this gospel in, in this life. 
Um, we need to clarify, though, only non-Christians who've never heard the gospel in this life and then rejected in the next life are bound for the terrestrial kingdom. A later revelation that was given to Joseph Smith, this is section 137, says, quote, all who have died without a knowledge of this gospel, who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. And we've got to measure Joseph Smith's revelations with each other. So a person that, that dies outside the church and then accepts the gospel in the next life is going to go to the celestial kingdom. The terrestrial kingdom consists of those who don't accept the gospel fully here or in the next life. And apparently that that is a category, okay? Um, the poetic version of the vision says, they received not the truth of the Savior at first, but did when they heard it in prison again, meaning they just accepted Jesus as the Savior. They didn't enter into gospel covenants. Not valiant for truth, they obtain not the crown, but are of that glory that is typed by the moon. They are they that come into the presence of Christ, but not to the fullness of God on his throne. You'll note that uh, the Latin word terrestrial, uh, it's rooted in the word terra, meaning earth. The terrestrial kingdom is considered to be kind of like earth in an Edenic in a, in a state like the Garden of Eden or a paradisiacal state, which sounds pretty good, right? These are good people, basically, that just didn't enter into the covenants necessary to go to the celestial kingdom. And interestingly, the terrestrial kingdom is the, the shortest description given in section 76. It seems like that might imply that this is an option that not a lot of people choose. It feels like if you're basically a good person, enter into those covenants or accept them after your death and go on to the celestial kingdom. Now, verses 81 to 88 is where we get our glimpse of the celestial kingdom. And these are basically, I, I like to say, they're just the people that kind of showed up and then did whatever they wanted to do. They didn't even try to be good. They just, they did their thing. Okay. Section 76 says, 83, these are they who deny not the Holy Spirit, but are thrust down to hell. These are not redeemed until the, from the devil until the last resurrection, until the Lord Christ, the Lamb, shall receive it. These people are people that basically did whatever they wanted to do while they were down here on earth. And interestingly, the word telestial appears in scripture uh, only in the Doctrine and Covenants, though Joseph Smith does put it uh, back into 1 Corinthians 15. It's a word that, if you look up in the dictionary, literally is only used by Latter-day Saints. But the, the, the connotation of telestial um, comes from a Greek prefix tele, which means at a distance. You might note that you can hear that prefix in words like telephone, which means faraway voice, or television, which means distant viewing. The connotation here is that the celestial kingdom is the furthest uh, from God. The people that go to the celestial kingdom basically suffer the pains of hell in the post-mortal spirit world, but then get redeemed and brought back to, well, to be honest with you, what isn't a, a terrible place? I mean, the world we live in right now is a celestial kingdom. So imagine the world we live in right now with all of its beauty and glory and, and wonder uh, with no famine, poverty, disease, war, or death. That's where a really bad person goes, according to the vision. Not a son of perdition, but someone that um, really didn't make much of an effort to know God, to understand him, or to live his covenants. That's where they go to, and that kind of shows how generous um, the vision is. It goes on to say in verse 89, we saw in the heavenly vision, the glory of the celestial surpasses all understanding and no man knows it except him to whom God has revealed it. And thus we saw the glory of the 
of the terrestrial, which excels in all things, the glory of the celestial, even in glory and power, might and dominion. And thus we saw the glory of the celestial, which excels in all things, where God, even the Father, reigns upon his throne forever and ever. What the vision was basically showing to Joseph and Sidney at this point was that anybody that goes to those kingdoms, even the telestial kingdom, the lowest one, the glory of the stars, still receives a, a home of glory. They receive immortality. They don't receive eternal life and exaltation. That's becoming like God. But the idea that God intends to punish his children um, is, is not really something that section 76 teaches. God holds us accountable for the decisions that we make. But the idea that he thrusts people into hell, into a, a lake of fire and brimstone for eternity, is something that section 76 just doesn't teach. Um, even in the Book of Mormon, where the lake of fire and brimstone are brought up, they typically add the qualifier is as a lake of fire and brimstone, meaning it's temporary. Um, section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants says that eternal punishment is God's punishment. It's only called eternal because God's eternal, but it does have an end. And everybody typically, excepting the sons of perdition, uh, wind up in a nice place. In fact, this is one of the things that the early members of the church really struggled with, with the vision. Today, the vision is one of the most well-known and well-regarded revelations given to Joseph Smith. But when this revelation was initially received, some people really struggled with it because it was too generous. Brigham Young, for instance, uh, gave this discourse where he said, quote, when God revealed to Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon that there was a place prepared for all, According to the light they had received and their rejection of evil and practice of good, it was a great trial to many. And some apostatized because God was not going to send to everlasting punishment heathens and infants, but had a place of salvation in due time for all and would bless the honest and virtuous and truthful whether they ever belonged to any church or not. It was a new doctrine to this generation and many stumbled at it. And there are indications that some people struggled to really accept this vision. Um, Joseph Smith, for instance, backed off a little bit. It was placed into the Doctrine and Covenants uh, in 1835 and becomes canon to the church, but they were careful with how they taught it because a lot of these people like Brigham Young that are coming from kind of a Protestant hellfire and damnation background uh, really struggle with the idea that God is going to reward uh sinners with with a nice place brigham young's uh, little brigham young's brother joseph was even more blunt uh, he basically said when i came to read the vision of the different glories of the eternal world and of the sufferings of the wicked i could not believe it at first why the lord was going to save everybody and we have to admit that there was something or there is something satisfying about believing that a wicked person is going to get get what's coming to them. Well, we do believe that a person has to work out their sins either in this life or the next, but that typically happens in this life or in the post-mortal spirit world. The vision is talking about the final home of where everybody goes to. And knowing the, the character and attributes of, of God, it's not surprising that it doesn't seem like God is concerned with punishing everybody forever, that God wants to reward people. And basically, the way he rewards people is to give them as much as they're willing to accept. A person that's a son of perdition is outright rebellious and won't accept anything from God, and so God can't really give them anything. But even a person that lives a celestial life is rewarded with a, a comfortable, beautiful, uh, section 76 even uses the term, glorious home to live in, and they're not suffering for all, for all eternity. But it does return back, verse 94, to... 
um, the the church of the firstborn says this: They who dwell in the present in His presence in God's presence are the church of the firstborn, and they see as they are seen and know as they are known, and having received of His fullness and grace, and He makes them equal in power and in might and in dominion, and the glory of the celestial is one, even as the glory of the Son is one. So the vision just boldly proclaims something that's taught in plenty of other places in Scripture. That people become, in the words of Paul, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Joseph Smith really loved this doctrine and taught it. He said in an 1844 discourse, You've got to learn how to be gods yourselves, and to be kings and priests to God, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. What is it? To inherit the same power, same glory, and the same exaltation until you arrive at the station of God, and ascend the throne of eternal power, the same as those who've gone before. What did Jesus do? Why, I do the things I saw my father do when the worlds came rolling into existence. My father worked out the kingdom in fear and trembling. I must do the same. And when I get my kingdom, I shall present it to my father so that he may obtain a kingdom upon kingdom and will exalt him in glory. He will then take a higher exaltation. I will take his place and become exalted myself. And I like that idea that us becoming exalted doesn't diminish God at all. It actually moves him up a level. What do you get? The person who's perfect and has everything, you give him yourself. You do the best you can to strive to become like him. That doesn't mean you sacrifice your individuality along the way, but Heavenly Father really is willing to reward all those that live the gospel fully with the same things that he has. Now, verses 98 to 106 returns back to the telestial. Um, after the sons of perdition and the celestial kingdom, the telestial glory gets the next most attention. And it gives us a few interesting insights here. For instance, it says that the people that go to the celestial kingdom are also people that sometimes affix to mortal figures on earth. Like it says, verse 99, these are they who are of Paul and of Apollos and of Cephas. Now, Cephas is Peter. That's not a bad thing. Uh, to follow. It's just saying that they become so fixed to Peter that they don't see Peter or Paul or Apollos as a messenger of Jesus Christ, not Jesus Christ himself, not the person that saves them. Even go so far into verse 100 as to say some people get so fixed on Moses or Isaiah or Enoch that they receive verse 101, not the gospel or the testimony of Jesus, neither the prophets. In other words, they just are concerned with following a person and don't look past that person like Isaiah or Enoch or Moses that's trying to point them towards Christ. Same thing happens to us sometimes. It's interesting that the connotation here is that some people in the celestial kingdom will be religious people, just people that become too affixed on an individual and and therefore don't receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then he gets into some more well-known categories. Verse 103, these are they who are liars or sorcerers, adulterers, whoremongers, and whoever loves and makes a lie. They will suffer the wrath of God on earth, and they will suffer the vengeance of eternal fire. They're cast down to hell and suffer the wrath of Almighty God until the fullness of times. So it's interesting that, that the Lord is saying basically here that you could become so fixed on a person um, that you don't see Jesus Christ and therefore accept his gospel. In fact, this might be a little controversial, but the poetic version of the vision adds in a few names to this. For instance, it's talking about the celestial kingdom, and it says, these are they that came out for Apollos and Paul, for Cephas and Jesus. And this is not speaking of Jesus Christ, the Savior, but a, an, an obscure 
person named Jesus, for Enoch and Moses and Peter and John, then it adds for Luther and Calvin, even the Pope, for they never received the gospel of Christ, nor the prophetic spirit that came from the Lord, nor the covenant neither, which Jacob once had, and they went their own way, and they have their reward. The basic message seems to be here that those who glorify mortal messengers but do not build their faith on Jesus Christ are standing on a sandy foundation. Devotion to a single person or ideology or philosophy outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ does not bring salvation. Even if that person is a messenger of Jesus Christ, we can get too attached to them and not see the message of Jesus Christ that's there. Now, at the end of the vision, like we said, there's kind of this encapsulation where they sum up everything and talk about the most important thing, which is Jesus Christ and what he did. Verse 107, he shall deliver up the kingdom and present it unto his father spotless, saying, I have overcome and have trodden the winepress alone, even the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Then shall he, this is Jesus Christ, be crowned with glory to sit on the throne of his power forever and ever. Then it mentions a couple things. For instance, verse 109, it says, the glory inhabitants of the celestial world are as innumerable as the stars of the firmaments of the heaven. And you jump down to verse 112, it says um, that a person in the celestial kingdom in a certain sense is a servant of the most high, but where God and Christ come, they cannot dwell worlds without end. And that maybe leads us to the question that always gets brought up when we get to the end of section 76, which is, are these kingdoms and the assignments into them eternal? Like if you go to the celestial kingdom, are you just there and that's it? Is there eventual advancement from one kingdom to another or isn't there? Now, I, I'm I'm not going to beat around the bush. There have been different statements by different leaders of the church on, on these subjects. And uh, to be honest with you, it, it really does sound in section 76 when it says they cannot come worlds without end, that when you get to the kingdom, that's where the kingdom is. At the same time, too, it, it's common for members of the church to kind of set up one leader against another leader, one leader that's making it sound like, yes, they can advance from kingdom to kingdom, one saying, no, they can't. This became so nettlesome that in the mid-20th century, Joseph L. Anderson, who was the secretary of the First Presidency, just basically got tired of people writing in and saying, what's the answer to this question? Is there advancement from kingdom to kingdom or isn't? And he provided a standard response to this question. Here's what he wrote. Again, Secretary of the First Presidency. So the First Presidency knew he was doing this and approved it. He said, the brethren direct me to say, the church has never announced a definite doctrine upon this point. Some of the brethren have held the view that it was possible in the course of progression to advance from one glory to another, invoking the principle of eternal progression. Other brethren have taken the opposite view, but as stated, the church has never announced a definite doctrine on this point. So it, it definitely is clear that some leaders of the church have held the opinion that you cannot advance from kingdom to kingdom, and others have held differing opinions, and they all get along, and they're all in the same church, and that is totally okay. We don't really know the answer to this question, though you can lean one way or the other when it comes to your reading of the scriptures. But let's not let this question of who goes where overwhelm the basic mission of the vision, which is that the plan of salvation is much more broad and expansive than we give it credit for. I love this statement by President Lorenzo Snow. Uh, he said this, God loves his offspring, the human family. His design is not simply to furnish happiness to the few here called Latter-day Saints. The plan and scheme he is now carrying out is for universal salvation. Not only for the salvation of the Latter-day Saints, but for the salvation of every man 
and woman on the face of the earth, for those also in the spirit world, and for those who may hereafter come upon the face of the earth. It's for the salvation of every son and daughter of Adam. They're the offspring of the Almighty. He loves them all, and his plans are for the salvation of the whole, and he will bring all up into that position in which they will be as happy and as comfortable as they are willing to be. Now, that's the key part of the quote to me. President Snow says he'll give them everything they're willing to receive. They'll be as happy and as comfortable as they are willing to be. We sometimes don't think about this, but there might be those among us who don't want to go to the celestial kingdom, who might not be totally happy or comfortable there. And all I can say is this. If if you wonder and sometimes worry about the fate of your loved ones who you think might not qualify for celestial glory, as long as you qualify for celestial glory, you are not cut off from them. A person in the celestial glory can go anywhere and is not restricted from any place in the universe. So if you go to the celestial kingdom, you will still have connection with your family, with your friends, with your loved ones, even if they don't go to the celestial kingdom. So don't worry as much about them. Let them work things out with the Savior on their own, but worry about yourself. If you get yourself to the celestial kingdom, you will be able to see them. That's a promise that's made in the scriptures. Now, just to to kind of end, um, the vision itself was something that Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon both were overwhelmed by. Like I said, at the end, Joseph was hale and hearty, ready to go. For more, Philo Dibble said, Sidney was pale as a rag, limp in the chair. Um, They do end by saying there are a lot of things that we saw here that we can't um, explain in words. Verse 116, neither is man capable. Well, let's back up. Verse 115, he commanded us that we should write while we were yet in the spirit and are not lawful for man to utter. There were things that they didn't write down. And neither is man, 116, capable to make them known for they're only to be seen and understood by the power of the Holy Spirit, which God bestows on those who love him and purify themselves before him, to whom he grants this privilege of seeing and knowing for yourselves. This is kind of the roundabout way of saying, look, there were things that we saw that we couldn't write down that we, we might not have had the words to or were commanded not to write. But this is a glimpse of what God has in store for us and how generous and kind and expansive God is when it comes to seeing his children. Uh, Joseph Smith, later on reflecting back on the vision when he wrote his official history, gave this summary of it. He said, nothing could be more pleasing to the saint upon the order of the kingdom of the Lord Then the light which burst upon the world through the foregoing vision, every law, every commandment, every promise, every truth, and every point touching the destiny of man from Genesis to Revelation, where the purity of either remains unsullied from the wisdom of man, goes to show the perfection of the theory and witnesses the fact that the document is a transcript from the records of the eternal world. The sublimity of the ideas, the purity of the language, the scope for action, the continued duration for completion in order that the heirs of salvation may confess the Lord and bow the knee. The rewards for faithfulness and the punishment for sins are so much beyond the narrow-mindedness of men that every honest man is constrained to exclaim, it came from God. Now, Joseph Smith said that, but let me add my testimony that I believe section 76 came from God. It is one of the most hopeful, most wonderful revelations ever given to any prophet ever. And the message is to us that God has greater things and better things in store for even the worst of us than we can possibly imagine. Yes, there is that small group of sons of perdition that goes away into fire and brimstone. But for most of the human race, there's good things ahead. And for those who live and commit to sacred gospel covenants 
and do the best that they can to follow the commandments, relying wholly upon the merits, mercy, and grace of Jesus Christ. There is a life that we cannot imagine where we not only get to live with God, where God basically tells us that he trusts us enough at this point to hand over the keys of the universe and place them into our hands. That is amazing and wonderful stuff. And I bear you my testimony that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, those things are possible. Thank you very much for your time and to sit down and listen to us. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll subscribe or leave a comment behind. My name is Casey Griffiths, and this has been the Come Follow Me podcast with David Ridges of Section 76.